Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Frank Carbajal is somebody that I met on LinkedIn, and I should have met him when I was still in the Silicon Valley. He is the founder and president of Estiempo. It's time. And he's the founder of the Silicon Valley Latino Leadership Summit. He also is the co-author of some pretty big books, Building the Latino Future, Success Stories for the Next Generation, and co-author of El Futuro Latino, which has been published in 14 Latin American countries. He's also on the advocacy committee for the Silicon Valley Education Foundation. He is an amplifier. He's a storyteller. He's a champion. He's a connector. First thing he said after we got done talking, how can I support Sidewalk Talk? And that's just who he is. And that's how he operates in the world, really amplifying folks that he thinks are doing good work and specifically amplifying folks from marginalized communities to really sort of showcase the prowess of their skill set, to really champion their work, and to really teach us all how to listen, listen to Latino members of our community. So I can't wait to bring you Frank. And a little side note, he's also won many parenting awards. He's like won fathering awards. He's a dad of three daughters. So sit back and enjoy meeting Frank Carbajal. Frank Carbajal, I have to say that following you on LinkedIn has kind of kept me sane <laughs> for 2020. Uh you have some of the most inspirational and, and hopeful posts, and it also keeps me a little connected to home because you're in the Silicon Valley. Tell me about your story, because you do some pretty groovy stuff with the Latino community and, and advocacy. Tell me about you and how this got started. Sure. Well, you know, it, it really comes from uh, humble beginnings. And Tracy, thank you for having me as a guest today. And to the audience, I'm very humbled. And, and speaking of Humility. My parents are immigrants from uh, Mexico and worked in the most humble of jobs. They worked as uh, migrant farm workers. And during that time in the 1960s, they uh, resided in a place known as Imperial Valley, which lies about 25 miles north of the Mexicali border of Mexico. And uh, my mom often reminded me that I was born with resiliency because. She uh, gave birth to me on June 19th, 1969, and she worked up until her third trimester, believe it or not, under that hot, blistering sun. And so that's where I really drive with inspiration and resilience. And, and with my dad, he has what, well, both of them um, passed away a few years ago, my mom just last year. But what he had was uh, what I called a, a, a skill to network. And in the early 70s, what we uh, all know in the Latino community is, you know, the, the kinship of padrinos and madrinas. So my godfather, padrino, 
uh, lived in San Jose during that time and said, hey, uh, my dad, Regino, why don't you move your family up north to Santa Clara Valley before it became the Silicon Valley, booming Silicon Valley. And you and your uh, wife, my mom, could work in canneries. And the canneries were really the labor of love for many immigrants that worked in the fields, worked uh, as migrant farm workers, braceros. And mind you, it was uh, during the time that uh, was a bracero program that eventually under President Ronald Reagan, the amnesty program, my parents became citizens. But they never stopped working from 1973 to my mom's retirement in 1995 in a cannery known as Del Monte. Del Monte, you know, cans that, uh, the canned fruits and things of that nature. And so my parents um, really, all they could afford to move to was um, a barrio, uh, known as a neighborhood that's uh, underserved. And uh, just today, President Biden had called for an action, an executive action for equity. And so I was born and raised in a community where there was lack of equity, lack of equality. And so that is my story in terms of a nutshell of my background moving to the Silicon Valley and throughout my education, being a first generation graduate from college, I realized in terms of equity and the lack of equity, I decided to write a book with, of course, the uh, the motivation, inspiration of my wife, who uh, was like my ghostwriter, a person who really believes in my dreams. And uh, I was published in 2008. And in 2010, because in 2009, the market crash, as we're experiencing today, we had to learn how to, I had to learn how to pivot in 2009 because Jeff Bezos started swallowing up all the, all the border books and Barnes and Noble. And so I said, what, what could I do? So I met with an executive mentor who was in my book at the time. And he says, hey, Frank, have a leadership summit where millennials, as we know of today, and Generation Z, as we know of today, could have access to purchasing your book. And so uh, my Silicon Valley Latino Leadership Summit was born in 2010, but based off of my book, Building the Latino Future, Success Stories for the Next Generation. So that's the platform. And that book, as I was doing research on you, is in 14 different Latino countries, no? Yes, it is. It is. And it was, um, I was very fortunate, um, Tracy, that I had a gentleman believe in me uh, by the name of Humberto, who's my co-author. And at the time, uh, Ken Blanchard, was his fa father-in-law, Ken Blanchard, known as the top five thought leader of the 20th and 21st century of all time because of uh, his leadership books like The One Minute Manager. And he did the foreword for my book, Building the Latino Future. Uh, and he also wrote a book titled The One Minute Entrepreneur. And so with that leverage, uh, Grupo Norma, which is the largest publication publisher in all of Latin America, uh, picked up my book, translated it, and uh, it was distributed in 14 Latin American countries. Grupo Norma is based in Bogota, Colombia. That's amazing. Congratulations on that success. Thank and you, you didn't and you didn't need Barnes and Noble and Amazon. You just you just were able to to do it on your own and with the help of community, which is pretty awesome. Well, you know, you know, I I, I love the question of what 
you know, that what you're, you're um, alluding to is really about my mom, you know, the, the resiliency and how I, as a first time author, you know, I was, I was rejected three times and I was told by, uh, I remember one publisher and it was just unfortunate, Tracy, because the editor for that particular publisher, one of the largest in the United States, in the world, he's Latino. And he's like, oh, no, this isn't the right time. And I, and I remember my mom speaking in my head. And I was very adamant with this gentleman. And I said, what do you mean it's not the right time, man? I said, we're the, we're the future. We're the largest majority minority that's going to happen in a few years, believe it or not. I said, you know, we're a purchasing power of over a trillion dollars. What are you talking about? He's like, oh, no, no, it's just not the right time. We're not really focused on it. And it was interesting because I didn't give up. And at that point, I looked at uh, individuals that could provide book testimonials for my book that were non-Latino. At that time, white men I looked at were folks that I read about in college, like uh, Dr. Stephen Covey. Dr. Ken Blanchard, um, Jim Collins, and Zig Ziglar, and these amazing, uh, Brian Tracy, and these amazing thought leaders, right? And so the first office I called was Dr. Stephen, the late Dr. Stephen Covey. And with the late Dr. Stephen Covey, I remember reaching his office, and it's based in Utah, and uh, his executive assistant answered, and she says, what type of book? And I said, it's a Latino leadership book, a framework of you know, really building the future for our community. And I could hear her almost laughing, you know, under her breath. And she says, oh, well, uh, you know, Dr. Stephen Covey's really busy. And, you know, maybe his his editorial board will look at your manuscript in six months. And right away, I told myself, oh, this is definitely a no. And I took the high road. And I said, well, thank you. Uh, please uh, let Dr. Stephen Covey, no, he's a hero of mine. I love his uh, book, The Seven Habits, and thank you for your time. And when I said thank you for your time, I knew that I wasn't going to reach out again. So the second, yeah, the second, uh, the second individual I reached out to was Dr. Blanchard's office, Ken Blanchard. And when I reached out to his office, I'll never forget the executive assistant, her last name is Jordan. She had a British accent, and this is when you should never assume. I right away made the assumption, Tracy, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere, right? I said, oh, great. You know, what is she going to really buy into, you know, this Latino leadership and pitch it to uh, Ken Blanchard? So she's like, Nancy Jordan was her name. She's like, Frank, tell me a little more about it. And I said, well, you know, it's really about uh, humble beginnings. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm the beginning of the story, but I have interviewed folks like Edward James Omos and, and Aida Alvarez, first person to sit on President Clinton uh, as SBA. And I, I mentioned all these names. And she's like, huh, that's very fascinating. And she says, brilliant. And I said, oh, whoa, whoa, I think this is going somewhere. And she says, you know, let me contact Humberto Medina, Dr. Blanchard's son-in-law. You could, uh, you could talk to Anna, his assistant. And see what happens. And I kid you not, that conversation from one minute of uh, of doubt turned into twenty minutes of hope. Mm. And she 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 transferred me to Anna, 
And, you know, things happen for a reason. I said, oh, great. Right. I'm going to get I'm going to get it. You know, when you start doubting yourself, that's the worst uh, tox, toxic feeling. And Anna picked up the phone and I started turning everything that my mom went through into optimism. And I said, oh. OK, Anna's, Anna answered the phone on the third ring. This is good. And Anna connected me with Humberto at the time, Humberto Medina, Kim Blanchard's son-in-law. He was so excited that he says, hey, Frank, I'd like to fly you uh, down to San Diego next week and let's uh, let's meet with Kim. Wow. Said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? He says, yeah. And so when we uh, when we got off the phone, I, I shared this with my wife. She's like, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm serious. And I remember Humberto and Kim, they live in San Diego. And so I stayed in Old Town. And I, I remember how nervous I was. I had this big binder, this manuscript, and I was walking up to Humberto's house because he wanted to meet me the night before I met um, Ken Blanchard. And so when I was walking up to Humberto's house, I had this binder. And when I knocked on Humberto's door, he answered with the co-founders of Ken Blanchard, this guy, Drea, uh, his good friend. And they had a glass of wine in their hand. And they said, Frank, you really brought the manuscript? I said, yeah. He's like, oh. And then he, he, he grabbed it. He put it on the couch. He's like, no, no. He's like, we're going to have some wine tasting tonight. And, you know, it's funny, Tracy. I don't drink. My wife drinks wine. I don't drink wine. So I'm like, oh, shoot. What am I going to do? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like microbrew. So I'm, a, I'm more of a beer connoisseur. And so uh, I said, you know what? I have to be up front. And I said, well, you know, uh, I don't really uh, drink wine. They're like, no. And I said, no. And uh, Drea says, I like this guy. He's honest. That's what he yep. said. Right, right off the top. He's not a phony. And I, I said, wow. And I said, get the, get the man a micro beer. You know you have one, uh, Berto. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, you know, they had a couple of glasses of wine and after a, a beer, uh, I, Drea, the co-founder of Blanchard's uh, company, asked me a couple of questions. And I, I got the right question from him, which was about community. And you talk mm. about community, and it, it really hit the the motivation cord of uh, inspiration of passion, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're passionate, you can't fail when you're passionate. There's no failure in passion. And so, um, Humberto looks at Drea. Drea looks at Humberto, and he's like, "Ken's gonna like this guy." <laughs> and so, yeah. And so the next day. Cumberto uh, picks me up and then we drive over to Ken's house. And I tell you, it was surreal because, you know, you walk into someone's home and they usually have like a wall of fame of certain photos that family and then famous photos. And his photos were of him and uh, John Wooden, the late great John Wooden and uh. Ty and then um, Michael Jordan. And then my favorite Pope, John Paul II and M Mother Teresa. I'm like, oh, my wow. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I felt the sprinkle of magic right away. Mm. And and the nerves really came down because it, it felt authentic. It felt real. And uh, sure enough, after that, when Ken and uh, Humberto says, you know, we're going to sign you under the Ken Blanchard uh, management companies, I, uh, I was guaranteed to uh, pitch the fourth time to a publisher known as Wiley and Sons. Mm -hmm. The Wiley and Sons is huge. And with Wiley, they um, 
it was very interesting because the editor was was this uh, non-Latina and her name was Emily Conway. And so she wasn't of Latino descent and uh, and she took the most interest out of the previous three who were Latino. Can I, you know, what's really interesting. I got to, I got to point this out. Do you know, because there's something really fascinating about your story. So I'm loving the resilience and I'm loving the fist, fist pumping, but you know, I'm a woman, you're a man. And I am hearing how pivotal, p- pivotal women have been through your story of this. We're talking about that first secret British secretary, Nancy Jordan, that then connected you to Anna, that then connected you to Ken, that then connected you to, to this editor that took, to this female editor that's not even a Latina that took more interest. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I just have to do a little shout out for the ladies. <laughs> Thank you. No, and, and yeah, yeah, shout out to the ladies. I mean, you know, I have my wife, my three, my three daughters, my three sisters, and uh, I even have female cats. <laughs> <laughs> you are in a sea, a sea of estrogen, I hear. No, but it's 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 super super cool. I I want to fast forward to the the the. I want to really get a sense of the impact now that this book has had. And how you're making a, a dent in really the the divide in the Silicon Valley of opportunity and, and sort of where you where you are now where, where how so fast forward the book has landed the the baby has been birthed into the world and how is it like making an impact in people's lives and in yours for that matter? Uh, well, you know, I, I thank you for the, the great question because I, I really reflect on just yesterday uh, from yesterday back 12 years ago. But, you know, that's why I, I really want to write another book because it, as I say, it's time, my business. But just yesterday on LinkedIn, I had this uh, dad who was an influencer send me a message. And it was a personal message on how he went to Amazon and just purchased my book for his 17-year-old son who's going to graduate from high school. But with the book, he says, is it okay when I receive it from Amazon if I mail it to you and if you put a a personal note for my son because he doesn't believe that I know you and I'm like oh man that that was just really I was humbled by that because I don't think of myself that way I think of myself as one of those uh kids like his son or uh or this gentleman that that's the father of the son that we have um Tracy a real battle a, a uphill battle even with, uh, for example, the executive order that President Biden uh, made today for the folks of color and even the Asian community he had mentioned, I just feel like in the Latino, the Latinx community, it's still a big challenge. And the year-to-year summit has really um, galvanized the Silicon Valley Latino leaders, not only here, but throughout the U.S. to visit the Silicon Valley for one day for the Leadership Summit. Now, fast forwarding to uh, fast forwarding and rewinding, so to speak, to last year when the summit was going to take place in May of 2019, then, I mean, uh, 2020, I should say, then with the COVID-19, I had to uh, pivot and, you know, continue to postpone. And uh, we're still at a situation where I'm postponing the summit because it's it's really best when it's a live experience 
where you really get to meet folks that you uh, have had these um, these dreams. I say dreams of meeting because I, I really made sure to to bring quality folks together that really worked their um, tail off to 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 be where they're at. And it was not nothing given and nothing uh, handed to them. It was worked toward and for. And so for me, it's it, the biggest compliment that I could receive is like that dad that called me uh, or sent me a, a message, direct message on LinkedIn to say, hey, you know, I, I'm telling my son that I know you. I just felt that that was the biggest compliment because that was my struggle as well. You know, being first generation, it really is a continuing fight. It's not something that we have to be complacent. Uh, we always have to continue to, uh, with COVID-19, especially, as you know, um, Tracy, because you, you lived here in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you go maybe 90 miles south of San Francisco, you have Salinas Valley, right? You have essential workers that are helping feed not only America, but the world, because that that's a that's a Mecca. If people don't understand the Mecca of picking, you know, Gilroy is the garlic capital of the world. And then Salinas has, you know, uh, the city next to it, the town next to it, artichokes. It's, it's just amazing how I never take things for granted. So looking at the tier systems, it really is important for me to help elevate those first generation uh, high school students that are going to be first generation college graduates. Yeah. It's day to, it's really day to day and really working day to day to making sure, as you see in my post, uh, elevating 365 Latina and Latino leaders daily. Yep. You know, I can't help but get a little sad though. It's something you just did when you spoke, you had to really make a claim and say, these are hard workers. Yes. And I could almost hear the way that you're trying to combat rhetoric Um, And having been somebody who (laughs) literally paid my way through college um, working in restaurants, I know this because I worked with Latina immigrants um, all through paying my way through college and restaurants. And there's just this way in which I hate that you have to somehow justify, (laughs) right, that we're not here taking things from people. That, that's exactly it. A, exactly it. You know, I, I remember, you know, my, my dad and mom, you know, if they, especially my mom, if they felt that they were going to have to take anything from the government, for example, my mom rather have not. She, uh, she, as you saw, you know, in the, in the restaurant industry, it's also in the uh, hosp- hospitality management industry where my mom would clean rooms or, you know, clean tables just to make sure that there was food on the table. And I think I think you're right. It really is a voice that we hear uh, in the common thread among many of the Latino community uh, members that to have that 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 struggle. So you're absolutely right. And thank you for pointing that out because for me, it really keeps me uh, grounded and understanding that you know we have so many so many uh, essential workers right now that have been impacted by COVID-19. So we're all complaining about being in our cozy homes, you know, having to do Zoom meetings. And then we've got other members of our community busting their buns to get us food on the table 
and and yet we inadvertently may make discriminatory comments about them, which which is what you know. I just want to shout out loud that this th- those comments are not reality, you know. So thanks for for kind of highlighting that in a way. Well, you're absolutely right. I know. Thank you, and I I really I agree with you so much that uh, that we have to also look at uh, you know folks uh, social media messaging and. Uh, if they're if they're tooting their horn during this time in terms of you know uh, selfish reasons, then they have to uh, do some self reflections and look at folks in need. And uh, you're absolutely right. One thing I I feel I feel most pressing is to uh, as you probably saw in my post is migrant farm workers that you know weren't uh, weren't being at first provided with mass and uh, now they are but secondly you know uh vaccinations you know it, it really is about mobilizing and getting spanish speaking folks to help uh you know explain the vaccine that it comes in two doses one and then the second because uh i think of my parents when i see the migrant farm working community and that's how my parents uh you know made their success and uh, you're absolutely right what you said about uh, words and uh, framing matters because, you know, there are so many folks that would be patronizing for for, for uh, looking at the migrant community and saying things that are patronizing. And you and I could pick up on it. But as an advocate, it's my job and uh, responsibility and accountability to show others that, hey, show some respect because we're all in the same playing field when it comes to COVID-19. Well said. Well said. Well, I want to pivot this into another direction because this has been something that I have been curious about. You know, loneliness is a problem globally. And sidewalk talk has kind of spread organically like wildfire, except for one place. In Latin America. And I have this fantasy that it's not just because we don't have our stuff localized, because we have chapters in in Brazil um, and in European Spanish-speaking countries. But tell me about community, that that is there a different organizing principle? And I know you can't speak for all Latinx people, but you can speak from your experience. What's your relationship to community compared to, you know, white Americans who maybe are sitting in their home raising their kids without any help? Right, right. Well, there's there's a there's a couple of things uh, as far as, um, you know, organizing and equity is concerned. You know, for example, when it's equity, as far as the digital divide, if we look at uh, March, I believe March 13th, coming up on a year. Was when we uh, decided not only COVID uh, COVID was going to be shelter in place, but schools, you know, were going to virtual learning, and it was uh, something that was very sad to see because many homes don't have Wi-Fi, and so it's a true fact that a lot of the kids that are studying in low-income communities, underserved communities, had to uh, take a bus or continue to take a bus or get near a McDonald's or a Starbucks where there is Wi-Fi. And as far as organizing 
it's it's a true fact that it takes um, it takes many Latino professionals to understand that we need you know the the help of uh, com- community liaisons liaisons that are also part of the team that are going to help organize. For example, uh, I was asked uh, Tracy to be on this uh, steering committee just a few weeks ago on how to identify Latino men that are, it's funny because when I mentioned uh, the age range, my wife says, yeah, you are middle-aged, Frank. <laughs> I said, what? She's like, yeah. she said, you're 51, so you're middle-aged. And so the thing is, is this demographic that um, where I live in Santa Clara County, you uh, know the, uh, the counties throughout California, it's, it's a large county. And uh, the initiative, Tracy, was to identify middle-aged men from as young as 38 years old to 58, for example. And it was very um, strategic and smart as far as the age range of loneliness. And these men from 38 to 58, unfortunately, are committing suicide because of not only, yeah, not only loneliness, but, uh, you know, the, the, as you know, what makes especially a, a Latin man, Latino man proud is his job, right? So if the, if the person that has essential work is out of a job, then they become not only isolated, but uh, there's things that uh, take over certain uh, mental health addictions, you know, uh, like self-medicating. And then from there, there was uh, situations of isolation and loneliness. And uh, the data was showing the unfortunate, the most extreme, you know, attempt or committing suicide, either the attempt to or the actual act. And and so I was asked to be part of this uh, committee to identify these uh, men in uh, specifically in the East San Jose area. Mm. Today I live today I live in Santa Clara, but I grew up in East San Jose. So <clears throat> they asked me because I know the area very well. But this is the thing, and you know the terms and the identifications for indiv- uh, individual groups. So in the email when I was reading it, I said, "No, no, this isn't going to work." I said, they're monolingual, Spanish-speaking. They have never heard of Latinx. I've heard this before, that the Latino community doesn't reference themselves as Latinx. Many, many groups do not. It's usually the younger folks, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that we need to be more inclusive about and, you know, thoughtful about. But for this specific group and, um, and study, if you will, I said, you have to take that term out. And they said, well, Frank, what would you say they would relate to? And I felt so humbled by, you know, by my suggestion that they took up the word that I recommended. And it was Spanish speaking men. Spanish speaking men from 38 to 58, uh, you know, middle aged Spanish speaking men. And it got a more positive response in terms of uh, assessment in terms of, uh, you know, analytics and uh, evaluation. And so... Yeah, it so sounds way things. more respectful. It's, it doesn't sound like I'm trying to do some kind of diversity study. It says, hey, Spanish speaking, you're a man. You're yeah. a whole person who happens yep. to speak Spanish, not you, you're yeah. Latino. 
<laughs> yes, yes. And, and so when I when I suggested that, uh, they came back uh, right away. Uh, the, the the analytic team, the consulting team, and said, "Hey, this is what we're going to go with." And so um, they have uh, they have gone with the survey. And uh, you know, Tracy, in the Latino community, we always say, "God willing," and God willing, it, it goes well to where we could really identify individuals that aren't alone. Loneliness means you are not alone. Loneliness is a term that really is perpetuating if you if you hang on to it without support. But with support, loneliness to means being you're not alone. You'll 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 be helped and you'll be listened to. I love that you're highlighting, you know, I realized that when I was doing research on loneliness that folks from the immigrant populations um, whether you're from Latin America or you're from other countries where you've left your country of origin, actually do suffer some of the most loneliness rates around. And I, I guess I didn't connect the dots because at the same time, it is often for us, our experience at Sidewalk Talk, these communities don't always take up Sidewalk Talk listeners. However, um, when we've been out in locations where we start to build some trust, when we've been out in the same location over and over again, then we do. Or in one instance, we were out in a, a Spanish-speaking area, and we had two Spanish-speaking locals with us. And because they ha we had two people from their community with us, then we were welcomed in. And it was amazing. People had a lot to share, including yeah. things like depression and um, lots of lots of discrimination, lots of stories of being pulled over by the police just because they were driving while Hispanic. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. You, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I love, by the way, I love Sidewalk Talk uh, uh, title because really uh, Sidewalk Talk is something that really helped me in terms of uh, just from entrepreneurship when I saw, you know, uh, Sidewalk Entrepreneurs you know, that's uh, in our community. Yeah. That really, that really resonates with me. And when I think of sidewalk talk, it's really something that's powerful. I remember Jaywalk, uh, Jay Leno used to have Jaywalk. Jaywalking yeah, with yeah. Jay. You remember that? And, and so I think it's, um, it's powerful. And I, I know that uh, we only have a few more minutes, but this, this was awesome. And, and you talk about, you know, the, the profiling and things that have happened to, to me a few times in my daughter, um, ask how is that and if it didn't happen to mom and you know my mo my wife is uh latina but uh she uh she's fair skinned with uh you know light colored eyes i'm brown skinned and i have brown eyes so you know it's unfortunate that uh that there are profiling going on mm -hmm. and ho hopefully uh it'll change but what happens as you know with uh the us political system is we'll have a We'll have a hopeful leader for four to eight years, and then we'll have someone else in the next uh, four to eight years. So that's um, that's what they call democracy in the United States. But I don't know if it's always democracy. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, so yeah. That's why it's awesome to have, you know, this the sidewalk talk because it re is real and authentic. And I. You I can't pay. You can't pay someone to walk across the sidewalk. It's the ultimate equalizer, right? We all have right. to walk across the sidewalk. We all have to live on the sidewalk because we all go to and fro on the sidewalk. And that's the place where we're all just the darn same, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's well, awesome. I told you, I, this was so great. Thank you so much. I told you that we have this little ritual. 
for how we end our conversations on the podcast, which is those folks that sit on sidewalks and listen to, to people. And these folks are sometimes we, we have a homeless pop-up care village that we listen at and we have homeless folks that volunteer with us. Like we, we really are an inclusive bunch where anybody can be a listener. It's, it's a really beautiful motley crew of people that I'm inviting you to speak to. So I hand over the mic to you, Frank, to either offer words of wisdom or a wish directly to those listeners all over the place that are listening on sidewalks and now, right now, online. Oh, gosh, I, I, I love this question because I, I reflect back and, and I promise I'll do the, the encouraging for all folks listening on the sidewalk in less than three minutes. I, um, in college, and, and it's sometimes this story when I, I bring it up brings me to tears because it really is. Uh, a powerful testimony of what opened my eyes to the homeless community when I was in college in 1992. I worked at a grocery store here in the United States known as Safeway. Safeway is a large uh, chain of grocery stores that, um, that you know, it, it really is affordable, but at the same time, you know, folks that uh, where I worked at the Safeway was in Midtown San Jose on San Carlos. So we had, uh, as you speak of Motley Crew, we had different folks that would come in to the Safeway. And I remember at the time, <clears throat> I was in a checker, I was a bagger. And people were like, oh man, you're in college and you're a bagger. I said, you know, I said, uh, I'm not planning to stay here at Safeway for the rest of my life. But what I would see, uh, Tracy and audiences, I would see individuals coming through the line. And there was this one gentleman I'll never forget. His name was Carl. And Carl would Daily, when I would work from Tuesday through Saturday was my shifts, from three to midnight. It was always like clockwork at seven. He would come in and he would buy a large gallon of vodka every night. And he would drink his vodka and I would see where he would go. He would go to the side of the building of the Safeway. And after about a month, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out what his story is. What's Carl's story? So... I went out, I talked to Carl, and I remember I would give him some uh, some of my mom's homemade burritos because I was living with my parents at the time when I was in college. And he loved them, but he told me his story. And his story was Carl was a transplant from Minnesota to work in technology here in the Silicon Valley. And his boss company paid him to move out. He was, he was a father of three. And his wife and his kids were driving from Minnesota and got into a tragic car accident. And after that happened, he felt that he had no life of, of hope. He didn't want to live. And I tried to convince, convince him just by talking to him because my undergrad at that time was social work. And so I would try to talk to him. He's like, Frank, don't, don't try to talk to me about this garbage stuff. He's like, you don't have a family, right? I said, no. He's like, you're not a husband, right? I said, no. He's like, just, just listen to me. And so when I would listen to him, I, I'd listen to his painful story. I didn't make judgment. But I remember one night, the assistant manager of Safeway comes running out of the store. He's like, Frank, where are you? Where? He's like, damn it, why don't you collect the carts? What are you doing? And I said, I'm talking to Carl. He's like, who's Carl? 
I said, over here. He's like, that's not Carl. That's a damn bum, he said. And I said, shame on you. And the, the manager at the time was Henry. I said, shame on you, Henry. I said, he's a person. He's human. You don't know his story. I said, shame on you, man. And and I was put on uh, <laughs> I was put on Henry's blacklist. Of course, I didn't uh, survive in that job, but I was so proud of myself that I let Henry know that Carl was a human and he had a story. Mm. And and with Carl, um, you know, <clears throat> this is where I get choked up. A couple of weeks later, he was found dead at the dumpster where he would drink. And I went back there. I remember I paid my respects. I'm Catholic. So I paid, I did a prayer. I paid my respects. And then I, I was taking my lunch break. So, you know, it was later, you know, I've worked a later shift, but they call it a lunch break. So I looked at Henry and I just nodded my head. It's like, shame on you, shame on you. Mm. And so my story of uh, sidewalk and for everyone is we all have a story to share and we all should be respectful of every human life. Dang, that might have been the best completion. Frank Carabajal from Estiempo. What a privilege. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so glad that, you know, you have a, a podcast that uh, shares with everyone that has this time to listen, especially under, you know, these uncertain times. And it's about hope and it's about inspiration. Wonderful. And everyone, please visit the show notes where you can find out more about Frank, where you can find out more about building the Latino future and future books to come. Thanks so much, Frank, for coming on. Thank you, Tracy. It was an honor. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to 